Today's scripture reading comes from John 5, verses 31 through 47. Hear the word of the Lord. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, good morning. If we haven't met one another, uh, my name's Gabe. I'm just one of the pastors here, and it is a joy to see you this morning on Palm Sunday. What a wonderful time throughout the world where Christians gather together in their weekly rhythm, but something unique about this Sunday where we remember Jesus coming in in the fulfillment of Scripture on a donkey, a very paradoxical view of the King, the Promised One, um, coming into Jerusalem. And actually all these, in many ways, protesters uh, to the oppression they're experiencing, finally looking for the one who's going to relieve them of their pain coming into Jerusalem. Well, with that in mind, as we turn to today's brilliant text from this Jesus, let's first continue with this posture of prayer and see what God has to do in our hearts, individually and collectively, okay? God, we're grateful that we can come. We're grateful that you gave us energy this morning to be here, even if it was just enough to be here, and we feel like maybe we have nothing left to give, but only have come expecting to receive. God, I thank you that you've been working throughout the night across the world, and you're working even now here in Kansas City, in this place, amongst these people, and simultaneously within every one of the hearts that are here gathered in your name. God, thank you that you have spoken through your son, Jesus. Thank you that John the evangelist recorded that. Thank you that we have the opportunity to hear, to learn, and not just static words, but the, the power of the Spirit to make them alive in us today. God, we need life, not just information. We need truth, not just facts. 
And so, God, I pray, Lord, that you would guide us deep into the heart of who you are and that we would walk out of here refreshed, energized, clarified, guided by your spirit. We love you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine something for me uh, for a second. Imagine you were uh, convicted of a crime and you were innocent. You knew you were innocent. You knew you didn't do anything. But there you are. And I'm going to fix this. You know, I didn't shave again. So, and here we are. I'm not used to this. Pastor Ben Beasley could teach me a thing or two, I'm sure, or Pastor Caleb um, about facial hair and mics. But sorry about that. Um, So here's the deal. Imagine you're... Weird, sorry. Imagine you were uh, convicted of a crime and you're innocent. And yet what happens often is you get convicted of a crime or accused of a crime and you have to wait in a prison cell until you can have uh, your hearing, right? And so imagine you've been waiting for months and you felt like the accusations were bogus, but there you are, either you don't have the money for bail because it's just absurd or um, you were considered too much of a flight risk. So there you are, you're waiting. And then finally your day comes So you trade in your orange jumpsuit for something more business cash, right? You step into the courtroom. There's the judge. There's the jury. And for you, you know, oh, man, you feel utter clarity that you are not the person who did this. And you feel like the evidence is going to back that up. And so what you do is you, you go into the courtroom and you chose not to plead the fifth which can be a pretty courageous thing even when you are innocent. And you go up into the witnessing box and, you know, you get examined and then cross-examined and you tell your story. You give your testimony as to where you were, how you weren't there the night of the crime, how this would no way, shape, or form reflect your character and who you are and how you work in the world. And then you step down. You felt like you did a good job, but simultaneously, you know, it's not just your testimony, right? (laughs) Anytime you step into a court of law, uh, it just ends up being your word against theirs, Um, and so you have all kinds of emotions. I just want you to imagine that. You, you, you want to cry, you want to vomit, you want to run, right? All these things, they're going on inside of you, but you're trying to stay calm, cool, collected there in the moment. But you feel pretty confident because you've got three witnesses that are, gonna, that are there to support your claim. You've got a friend, you've got some footage of the actual night of the crime, and you think about what's actually in the physical evidence. So you have a friend who's there, and he goes and he testifies there in the witness box, and he says, hey... My friend was with me that night of the crime. There's no way. Here's like a newspaper, if people even have those, or a digital copy of like a blog we're reading. You know, here we go. Um, And and he was with us. Here's the the examples. Here's all the proof. And and I'm going to tell you right now, I know his character. I know who he was. And he was with me. There's no way. And he did an exceptional job telling who you are and where you were and that you couldn't be there. So you're starting to feel a little bit better. Next, you have the footage of the crime And you're looking and the person who's actually doing the crime looks nothing like you. I mean, you look at that and you're like, maybe it's just me, but that person's 6'2", I'm 5'7". There's no way, right? Like, obviously, that's pretty clear that this isn't me. Then you get to the third element, the physical evidence. There's no DNA evidence. There's no fingerprints. There's nothing that puts you at the scene of the crime. Absolutely nothing. They've got nothing against you. And so you sit to yourself and you think, okay, okay, this case is just as good as done. All they got to do is the jury's got to go out. And see the obvious nature of this come back in and clear my name and we're all going to go home and it's going to be great. And so you're trying to control your excitement because it feels like an open and shut case. And so the jury is dismissed and they go. And they're out for only like a minute. And they come back in and you think to yourself, that's either really great or not, right? That kind of decision making that quickly um, can go one of two ways. And you're sitting there and then you, you notice in the jury something that you hadn't noticed before. They won't even make eye contact with you. 
you almost see like an anger and a frustration in the jury. And now you're starting to get a little worried because <laughs> as they stand, they give their verdict and off the lips comes guilty. And your heart goes from your chest down into your stomach. And you, all these questions are going through your mind. You're thinking, how? Like, why would they do this? Like, what was motivating them to ignore your testimony, the testimony of a friend, uh, the footage, the physical evidence? Like, it's almost as if they'd already made up their mind before they even came into the courtroom that they were declaring you guilty. And somehow it was less risky to actually engage in a malpractice of justice, like this, this unjust act and declaring you guilty when there's no evidence than it was to declare you innocent. Somehow, something was going on inside of them. And you realized in that moment, in that decision, they'd locked you out of their life. Their decision had an impact on you and their relationship for the rest of your life. Now, unfortunately, um, even in a, the best court system in the world around, that happens all too often here in the United States. And I'm going to even be clear, if it happens once, <laughs> it happens too many times. And by God's grace, we did hear of a gentleman by the name of Keith Carnes. I think I'm saying his last name correctly. Finally, his case was thrown out after years of being in prison and falsely accused, right? And it takes so much work, so much to get a retrial, so much, and all the extra little technicalities. And finally, he was first uh, assumed guilty until he proved innocence, which is the exact opposite of the way our system is supposed to work. And then he had to demand release, <laughs> and the extra above and beyond just to declare his innocence. Praise God, finally justice is done, and someone who was falsely accused is released. But it happens again and again. And here's what I've come to say this morning, is Jesus can relate with Keith. Jesus can relate with Keith. He's here in this text, and he's put on trial by the religious leaders who demand that he prove himself innocent. And no matter what Jesus does, no matter how many witnesses he brings, no matter how clarifying he brings and, and, and makes his testimony, the religious leaders, they come with their own motivations, their own biases, and they're ready to deny Jesus, to dismiss him. And then ultimately, as we've seen earlier in, in John chapter 5, they're ready to kill him. In any capital offense case, you need at least two witnesses to corroborate that. That's the Mosaic law. And so what does Jesus do? He brings three witnesses as to why they have no right to come and kill him <laughs> and to chase after his life. But of course, it had nothing to do with the evidence. They'd made up their decision before they came. Now, the question, if you're anything like me, is like, well, this is the decision that the religious leaders made. Why does John the evangelist include this here for us? That's because you and I, we can do the same thing too. Yeah, we've got our own motivations. Yes, we've got our own biases. Yes, we've got our own reasons for the decisions we make. But the reality is, is everyone in here has to cast a verdict as it relates to Jesus. And so the, re the, the resounding question, or the reverberating question that's going to happen over and over again throughout this time this morning is, what is your verdict? What is your verdict? What does justice demand of Jesus? And I want to be very clear. This whole case that we're going to be walking through this morning has less to do with revealing who Jesus is, but what we're going to interestingly come to find out is it reveals a lot more of who we are. And how we go about casting this verdict or making this verdict and declaring this verdict 
is actually one of the most surprising elements, I think, of this trial that Jesus allows himself to undergo. So for that, let's look together. If you haven't already, turn open or turn open, open your Bibles and turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Now, we're going to step into a space that's pretty fascinating. We've been walking through John 5. It's all deeply interconnected here. And when we get to verse 31, Jesus basically calls court to order, which I just want you to know that's absolutely fascinating to me. Think about if you were here with us last week, and if you're not, I'll just do a quick recap. Just earlier in verses 19 through 29, Jesus lays out who he is. This is his testimony as to who he is. When they come asking, ready to kill him because of how he acted on the Sabbath, Jesus gives his own testimony, and he says, guess what? I'm the only son of the Father. I am the judge over all. And then he has these accusations, these religious leaders who know their Bibles backwards and forwards, who are following the rules better than anyone ready to murder him. And what does the judge overall do? He doesn't wipe them out. Isn't that fascinating? Instead, he puts himself on trial. And he calls these three witnesses to bear witness about who he is. And the reason he does that is not because Jesus is defensive. He always feels like he needs to give his case. It's so important. He does this because he loves us. We see this in verse 34. He says, I don't need the testimony of man, but I do this so that you might be saved. Didn't we hear this? This is out of his great love for us. This isn't because he has an ego that he needs to prove. He already knows who he is. The father already knows who he is. The spirit's already testified to who he is, but he's doing it for us. Even when we want to reject him, even when we want to dismiss all the evidence and we're ready to push him out the courtroom, he still steps back in and says, I've got more evidence. Please come to a different verdict. That's who our God is. And that's actually what John is doing across this gospel account. If you go back to John chapter 1, verse 19, that's why God became flesh. He came into the world he created for us. That's why we've entitled this. We've been walking through this brilliant account. Because he's pursuing us in order to make the invisible God known. Telling us a story that we as human beings with finite capacities, we can't understand everything. He's giving us a story that we can actually understand about who he is so that we can actually trust him and walk with him and know him in the beauty of the life that he's come to give us. We're already condemned, but he's come to give us life. And all of that because he loves us. This is a court of love. <laughs> That sounds like a reality show, doesn't it? Steve Harvey or something. It's <clears throat> a court of love. I love Steve Harvey so much. Anyway, so here we are. And in many ways, this is the trial before the trial. So we are stepping into what is historically called Holy Week, where this is the week right before Good Friday and Easter, where we're stepping into Jesus' intensity, where he's walking and marching and intensely putting his face towards the cross for us and then experiencing the resurrection this is a unique week where we as Christians, we spend time more introspective and in repentance of our own brokenness, seeking to align with the way of the cross so that we might celebrate more fully in the resurrection. The real final trial comes on Good Friday right before the cross. But this is kind of the trial before the trial. This is the trial that Jesus calls on himself. And I hope you can join us on Good Friday. We've got the details for that online, but that's one of my favorite serv services. It's a service of shadows. It's absolutely beautiful, and it usually stirs our hearts as we think about the beauties of the gospel and all that God in Christ has done 
for us. But Jesus, he's done this to woo us or to draw us closer to himself, and he calls these three witnesses. And here's the first witness he calls to the stand. It's the witness of the sacrificial truth teller. The witness of the sacrificial truth teller. This is someone who says the truth, the reality of the way it is and the way that God is actually working no matter what it costs them, no matter what they have to sacrifice. And in the first century, in a Jewish context, everybody would have known who this person was. In the line of the prophets, this is John the Baptist. Look with me here in our text again, verse 33 and verse 35. Jesus says, you sent to John, like this delegation, this group of people to kind of explore him. And he has borne witness to the truth. Look down to verse 35. He was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So Jesus calls John the Baptist and his testimony about him to the stand. Everybody knew where John the Baptist stood on Jesus. He had made it explicit. And everybody knew about John the Baptist. He was someone who's sacrificial. You don't live in the wilderness and survive on a starvation diet because you're trying to siphon off wealth to cultivate comfort as a prophet. You don't speak truth to political leaders who are living sexually immoral lives and then get imprisoned and then ultimately lose your head because you're pursuing comfort and trying to, this guy will speak the truth to power to everyone, regardless of where you are, for your good, no matter what it costs him. That's who John was, such that even when Jesus starts gaining influence, as we may remember as we walk through that, he goes, I got to come less. Jesus has got to become more. He was willing to give it all up to make much of Jesus. And what was his testimony of Jesus? That's why John the evangelist records it in chapter 1, verse 29, looking at Jesus so that everybody could hear, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one. Everybody knew how John the Baptist felt about Jesus. And if you believed that God was working through John the Baptist, which even these Pharisees did for a little while at least, then you couldn't help but take his testimony seriously. John says the thing that everyone needs to hear about Jesus, and he comes as a witness. And throughout history, there have been these sacrificial truth-tellers who are pursuing God's purposes in the world. For over 2,000 years, we've seen person after person. And where do you find them? I'm going to tell you where you're not going to find them. Really good chance you're not going to find them on Twitter, okay? That's, that's a place that can consume your life, but not in the way that necessarily leads to life. But instead, it's people like Bonhoeffer, right? The 20th century theologian and pastor who he came back to this. He came to the States to study. And then he saw how the black church was experiencing so much persecution and suffering from broader society and even by those who claimed to be Christians. And he saw the resilience of the gospel holding fast to Jesus. And he said, this is true Christianity. Then he went back to Germany and he saw the German church come back and support Hitler and his oppression, and decimate Jewish lives, and Polish lives, and so on. And he said, that Christianity that people are saying is Christianity is not Christianity. And then he finally was imprisoned, and he died in a concentration camp, because he chose to spoke against, speak against people who claimed to be Christians, but weren't. And that's why even I say sacrificial truth-tellers, because in our culture and in our day and age, sometimes the label Christian does not mean Christian. It just means I want something from you, and if I say I'm this, I'm more likely to get it. Hey, I'm in a dating relationship with you. I'm a Christian, therefore you might be more willing to marry me, but as soon as we get, done, get married, I'm not going to go to church anymore. I've seen that way too many times. 
Okay, oh, you know what? This might help me get a job in a particular organization. So yeah, I'm going to say I go to church for right now and I might show up a couple weeks and then when I get the job and I get locked in, then I'm done. I may say I'm a politician and I'm a Christian. But that's all to get your vote. Christian is a label that's used to gain influence in our culture sometimes. So be careful. A lot of people say it, but that's not what we're talking about here. A true little Christ captures his values, his purposes, the King Jesus and his values that are on display in his life and his crucifixion and therefore resurrection. Strength made real in weakness and humility. So that's what I mean by a sacrificial truth teller, someone like John the Baptist, someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, someone, frankly, like Frederick Douglass, someone who... I had a professor at Trinity, Douglas Sweeney. He was a gentleman who um, actually uh, wrote a book called The American Evangelical Story. He's an evangelical, loves Jesus, but capturing kind of the complicated history of the church in the United States. He writes about Douglas, um, and he says, you know, Douglas would charge Christians for their complicity in the evil of the slave trade, saying the church and the slave prison stand next to each other. Then he would go on to say, Douglas would go on to say, the church going bell and the auctioner's bell chime in with each other. And the pulpit and the auctioneer's block stand in the same neighborhood. And then he would go on to say about Christian ministries that were profiting from slavery. And he would say, we have men sold to build churches, women sold to support missionaries, and babies sold to buy Bibles and communion services. And then he summarized his concern in the words that have really haunted Christians since, he says, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. It's not the Christ here. He was compelled by that one. But what he was seeing happen to his own people, he said, this surely cannot be supported by Jesus. Not from what I see here. And to be clear, he was not anti-Christian or anti-church. He was saying that to highlight how actually he was way in favor of Christianity and the church, but how he was seeing a massive difference in how it's showing up with his own people in the United States. It's people like Jenny Yang, who's a part of World Relief now, helping tell the true story of immigrants here in the United States, going around teaching a theology of the scriptures, of how we as followers of Jesus should have his mind when we come alongside of the foreigner and the stranger, and how that actually changes the way we engage in the political frame in engaging and caring for the least of these. We had her as a guest out at our Aletha campus and guiding us in deepening our partnership with Mission Adelante, who works on the front lines and teaching English as a second language and providing resources and also helping provide resources to us as a faith community of the true stories of what are actually happening and the good that many immigrants are bringing to our community. So I ask you this, these lamps that are burning bright and have been burning bright, that are ultimately dim in comparison to the sun, will you hear their testimony? Will you hear what they're proclaiming of who Jesus is that's transforming the way that they show up, speaking truth, even when it costs them much. Well, Jesus, he calls a second witness. He calls a second witness to the stand, and this is the witness of the supernatural. The witness of the supernatural. So there's the natural, right? But then there's what feels like it's beyond our senses, beyond our explanation. We may even imagine it, but we can't actually imagine that it's real. And this is what Jesus says in verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. 
For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, present tense, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So what he's talking about is there are things that I've been doing. And he's actually, John the evangelist only records two. Once again, think of a court case earlier. He records that Jesus heals an official son and he causes an invalid to walk. Two miracles. The natural order of creation is that it slowly dwindles into chaos and decay. These two individuals were slowly dwindling into chaos and decay, and he brought new life. Who does that? Jesus like, that doesn't just come. You can't just control that. It has to be given, and it was given to me by my Father. That in and of itself is an indication. I'll give you two witnesses that I indeed have these works, and there is more. John the evangelist says later on in the gospel, there's so much that Jesus has done that not even, you could put them in all the books of the world, and they wouldn't be able to capture it all. But he gives us two to give us two validating witnesses of the Father affirming that he indeed has sent Jesus, doing what only God can do. A supernatural. And today, it's still surprising just how much unexplainable good there is. Now, to be clear, there's a lot of pain. And some of you walked in here with a lot of pain, and that is not me minimizing the pain that you may be experiencing. Simultaneously, there is a lot of unexplainable good. That points to God whispering to you. It's the beauty of a sunrise. The taste of a delicious meal. The look in the eyes of a loved one. The giggle of an infant. (laughs) The joy of a friendship when you stick close beside one another, even through pain and suffering. Those are the unexplained goods that come, that are whispering that there is a good God that's pursuing you. That's broadly, but more specific. There's answers to prayer. When you call out and you say, God, I need you to work, and he does. Not always how we plan, but man, he's working. And some of you here are praying, and you're not receiving the answer you want. That doesn't mean that God's not working. It just means he's got a longer timeline, or he's got a different route, but he is pursuing your good. It's the answer to prayer, or maybe even it's the stories of brothers and sisters of faith over in the Middle East who are having these dreams where Christ is literally showing up in the dream saying, come to me, like our brother Hussein that used to be a part of this congregation, him and his family who came from the Middle East. He was there. He had a dream. He always wrestled with the love of Allah. He only experienced fear from Allah. But when Christ came, he felt the love of God consume him and he pursued the gospel. And when he heard, he gave his life and then he ran because for fear of his family murdering him in this conversion to Christ. But Jesus miraculously showing up and wooing people, drawing them to himself, that they might be a witness to others, not just for them, but through them for all. Will you listen to their witness, the witness of what is beyond us, the supernatural that still simultaneously is happening among us if we have the eyes to see? But Jesus... He doesn't stop there. He calls one more witness uh, to the stand. So if you think it takes two to prove guilty, Jesus brings three to prove innocence. (laughs) 
He's like, I'll just give you one extra, okay? And he goes right after their authority structure. These are religious leaders. These are the people who should have known. These are the people who didn't just read their Bibles. They memorized so much, if not all of Genesis through Malachi. It might not have been in that exact order, but they had it all hidden within their heart, having these deep dialogues around what it indeed meant. And then on top of that, memorizing other rules and regulations. They knew so much. So Jesus goes to write to what they think they know. He goes to the scriptures, the witness of the scriptures, Genesis through Malachi, these men that were prophets, that were priests, that were poets, that were historians, where God was guiding his people towards the fulfillment of his promises and ultimately laying the seedbed for the Messiah, Jesus. Jesus says in verse 39 and verse 40, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So this is how Jesus reads the Bible, okay? Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And I'm going to tell you all, if you, once again, think about the passage that was just read. Jesus says some hard stuff, almost borderline harsh, to people whose whole identity was found in knowing God. He says, You've not, you don't know him, you haven't heard his voice, and the love of God isn't in you. Whoa, that is not Midwestern nice. <laughs> like, that's fisticuffs. That's intense. No wonder they want to kill him. Just jump back up again to verse 18. They're ready to murder Jesus. The ones who are supposed to be looking for God to show up. He does, and they're ready to kill him. And it's not the prostitutes. It's the religious. And then Jesus he makes it very clear, and this is why this is so important. He makes it very clear why they can't see him. Look at verse 44. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? He jumps right into their pride, their arrogance. They love to talk about themselves, and they love to hear other people talk about them. Oh, yes, sing my praises. Yes, I am the smartest. Yes, I'll give the longest prayer, and everybody talk about how great of a prayer I am. You know, and I'm going to be real. I'm reading this and it freaks me out because then it's like, oh, I'm a preacher and look at how long I can preach, whatever. Like there's some, there's some unique attack here that is appropriate for me as a pastor. But this is true for all of us. Anybody who grew up in the church or anybody who's longing to follow Jesus, there's some warnings here. If you make arrogance and pride and boasting, that is so anti-Jesus. It's one of the greatest characters. If you want to find someone who is so anti-Jesus, Listen to them talk about themselves incessantly. It's one of the key markers that they are not a follower of Jesus. And that's where Jesus goes. He's like, you can't even hear me. You don't know what I'm about. Because all you do is you're just looking for more people to praise you. And you're, instead of looking for ways for God to show up. And, and for his glory to be made manifest. They're just so consumed with themselves that they can't see the suffering, messy, wonderful God. The word became flesh that they thought they had memorized. That word become flesh right in front of them, and it doesn't look anything like what they thought they knew. Do you feel the absurdity of this? And then if you go down, I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but it's just, it's heavy, because then he goes right to Moses. Like this, this is their guy, Moses, their ultimate authority. And look, look at what Jesus says in verse 45 through 47 again. 
Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. So Jesus is like, listen, I'm still not here to condemn, okay? There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? I'm going to say a really hard statement, but it's important. Jesus says, you are not a Jewish person in the truest sense unless you embrace him as Messiah. Moses will reject you if you reject Jesus. That's intense. That's what I'm, this, this, Jesus is not mincing words, letting all these different pathways. There's one way and it's through him. And yes, it's concurrent. It lines up. It's in alignment with what God has said throughout history. But if you reject Jesus, don't think Moses has got your back. And I mean, even if they just would have listened, scholars have noticed this, and this is the danger of self-deception, okay? We get so set on one thing that we miss the great thing that God's doing right here because we're so set on that thing. And God's like, it's not that thing. It's this one, okay? Chrysostom an early theologian of the church, he says, for Christ would reply, since it is acknowledged that I came from God by my works, by the voice of John and the testimony of the Father, it's certain that Moses too would condemn you. For Moses has said that if anyone shall come doing miracles, which he has done, leading people to God and foretelling the future with certainty, this is Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse one, you must obey him. Now Christ has done all this. If they would have just looked for the precedent in Deuteronomy from Moses' own words. Now, they're reading Scripture in a very different way where they're trying to, de- to, to self-justify themselves rather than looking for a God who's come to redeem and renew. But if they'd have just gone to Deuteronomy 13.1, they had all the evidence to actually give Jesus a significant hearing and to follow him. They wouldn't even follow precedent, which is important in a case of law. In a court case. Well, today, um, here's where we are. We have both what's often called the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, that Genesis through Malachi, and the New Testament, Matthew through Revelation. And the beauty is, is that all that Jesus said of the Hebrew Scriptures still stands true. Yes, they spoke to a specific people at a specific time that had a relevant application that guided the people of faith as they wandered in the wilderness. Yes, yes, yes. But all of that simultaneously was pointing us to Jesus. All of it. And all the New Testament writings, the gospel accounts, the letters, they in many ways all point back to Jesus. Jesus is the hinge where the Old Testament's looking forward. The New Testament, for the most part, is looking back. But both of them also look through Jesus and how he's going to ultimately accomplish all of these purposes in the, pre- in the future. But it's all through the lens of Jesus. And we can now have a deeper understanding of how, because of the brilliant minds and the work of the Spirit through the apostles and others, to pull these pieces together for us to see exactly how Jesus saw himself. And so for over 2,000 years, we've seen the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, continue to shape the people of God to become the bride of Christ. So will you hear their unified testimony? Will you hear them? These were their witnesses a sacrificial truth teller, the supernatural, and the witness of Scripture. And these are our witnesses today as well. And so here's the question. What will your verdict be? We're coming to Good Friday, and we'll see how far Jesus goes to purchase us and to pay for our sin. But today is Palm Sunday. 
And this is the day where Jesus, he comes to the gates of Jerusalem. And as the people are crying out, Hosanna, as we did as a people. And the Pharisees, they come again and they say, quiet these people down. And what's Jesus say? You quiet them. Even the rocks are going to cry out. He's like, man, I got more witnesses. I just called three, you know. (laughs) Will you hear? And there was never enough evidence. Never enough. Because it wasn't about the evidence. They'd already made up their mind. They had their biases. They knew what they wanted. And want what the heart wants, the mind finds justifiable, and the hands find doable over and over and over again. We try to go to cognitive, and we think, if I can just logically get myself there. Listen, there is a logic to the gospel that's brilliant. But if you're just trying to get there, and you're trying to ignore what it is you actually want, and how that informs the way you think about things, you've missed it. The heart's at the center. So what about you? Because, I mean, they made a decision, the religious leaders. Ultimately, their goal to kill him, despite his evidence, came to a conclusion as they called together a kangaroo court and murdered him. What are our options? What will your verdict be? Here are three options, okay, as we close this out. There's either to reject the evidence, there's to remain undecided about the evidence, and then there is to receive uh, the evidence as sufficient. Okay, so first, the first option is to reject the evidence. Everyone in here, you've heard the testimonies. So you have an option to reject the evidence. And this is basically the stance, if the outright rejection is the stance of atheism or even any other major world religion. If you deny Jesus his rightful and exclusive place, that is an outright rejection of the evidence here. And if that's where you are this morning, because someone dragged you here, or you're just here to explore, you're asking some questions, and you're kind of at that place, but you're not sure if you're going to ever change. Listen, if you're at the plate of, most folks here aren't at reject the evidence, (laughs) or you wouldn't be here. But maybe there's someone who is, or you're on the border of going that route. I want you to do instead something. I want you to ask why. Um, I I put you kind of in a juror's seat uh, when you came in, and you imagine. But the reality is, is you're on trial too. And you need to ask, what are my motivations for not accepting this evidence? What are my biases? Am I aware? Do I have people in my life who can challenge me? It's like, hey, you're totally skipping over these, this evidence here because you just really want this. We all do that. I do that. Are you willing to put yourself on trial because it's that important? Because here's the warning. If you turn a blind eye to the evidence for Jesus, it will only be a matter of time before you turn a blind eye to the suffering and injustice of those around you. And when you start closing your eyes like this to the evidence in front of you, it won't be long before you're blind to Jesus, blind to others, and even blind to yourself. And sometimes we don't find that out until much later in the journey. And what is given to us as the gift is, rich, is, uh, is um, regret. Is that where you are? The second option is to remain undecided. Remain undecided. This is maybe more commonly termed agnosticism. Um, But the reality is, is it's just another form of the first, but I think it's actually more dangerous. And here's why. Because if you're undecided, it's easy to stay unchanged. If you have an outright rejection, somebody can misprove that and you go, oh, I have to rethink. If you're undecided, then it's always about gathering more and more and more evidence, but you get to keep control. 
It's a way of self-deluding to think that if I don't make a decision, then I'm actually not risking anything. But the reality is, and here's what happens in our court cases. When there's not a decision on the court case and somebody doesn't have bail, they're still locked up. And here's the even great, the greatest trick of all of this, the evil one coming after you, is you think you're keeping Jesus locked out of your life, but the reality is, is you're in prison. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, okay, I'm going to keep visiting this idea. And you think you're living your life in freedom, but the reality is you're in a jail sale. And every time you engage this conversation, you get a little bit of taste of life, but it's just someone coming on visiting day. And you think to yourself, you know what, Jesus, I don't know if I want this. And the reality is, is you've just locked the doors to your own prison from the inside. That's what C.S. Lewis brilliantly said. He said, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. God is always pursuing us. But ultimately, to remain undecided is to keep saying, God, I need more evidence. This isn't enough. And Jesus is like, I keep giving to the point that he even tells the Pharisees, you're not going to believe me if I raise again on the third day. And then what happens? They make an argument that someone stole the body. There's always a way to justify indecision. But the reality is the longer you're there, the more numb you are to good evidence. So beware staying in the undecided position. And that leads us to the third position, and that's to receive the evidence as sufficient. This is the Christian uh, position. This is the place of being a follower of Jesus. And I want to be clear, this is more than just cognitive, okay? It's more than a theological pop quiz. So how do we receive Jesus's witnesses? That's really the question I want to raise uh, for us really quick as we close out. First is to embrace who Jesus said he is and who those who knew him best said he was by reading both, yes, the Old Testament and the New Testament because they're all pointing to him and accepting the witness and the testimony of himself and those who knew him best, who walked with him and then even died for him, embracing who Jesus said he was and accepting him for who he is. But to be clear, that's not just an awareness of who he is and accepting that. That means embracing Jesus working now, always. One of the greatest errors of the Pharisees is they thought they could have past knowledge and that was good enough when they would not recognize what God was doing right in front of them. And Jesus is like, I've come to give life now. I'm working now. It's messy. It's among the people you often want to neglect. It's very different than you expected, but I'm here. Do you see me? And they said, no. That must be the work of a demon. Because this is crazy. Are you aware of how God is at work now? A friend brilliantly said uh, yesterday or two days ago, it's like sometimes we get so consumed with being right that we forget that we're called to be righteous. And if you just consumed with being right, that's what the Pharisees were. I'm right, right? Oh, yeah, you're so right. Yeah, I'm right. We're all right. You know, it's all about this puffing up and arrogance. What is knowledge without love? Arrogance. The Apostle Paul goes to this. It's about being righteous, showing up, and joining him where he's working today. Ultimately, it's becoming the witness that we saw. It's becoming someone who's a sacrificial truth teller. It's someone who comes to expect God to work in the supernatural. It's someone who goes trusting that the scriptures are indeed pointing to Jesus and going, reading scripture, and seeing what it meant in the original context and how it simultaneously points to Jesus. It transforms how you show up. So what's your verdict? Huh? What is our verdict? What's your life reveal? Because if you say, yes, he is indeed who he said he is, if his witnesses are ringing true with truth, then you join a long line of men and women who have received by faith who these witnesses have declared Jesus to be. And we now, this side of the resurrection, 
have the beauty of one who's defeated death. And we're going to celebrate it next week. I hope you join us. Oh, man. It's one of my favorite Sundays, right? We just have so much hope because of that. And the people who saw Jesus, over 500, who then even many of them gave their lives rather than a recant of what they said they saw, experienced, and touched. Because there's a day coming. For sure, there are plenty who are going to deny that Jesus is who he said he is or relativize that he's just one of many, which is also a denial. And there's a day where that gavel will come down and Jesus or God the Father will declare over all, this is my son. And as the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and those who had rejected him will get their due. Those who have received him and declared a verdict that is righteous and just of Jesus will also receive what is their due, not because they're better, but because when we declare Jesus is who he said he is, then he declares who he is over us. And no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, he says, it's forgiven. If you see me for who I am, I have something to give you and I will give you forgiveness and you will be made whole because you're trusting me. Let me walk with you. And that's what he's come to give us. So what's your verdict? Stand on the side of justice. Stand with Jesus. It's the only verdict that makes sense of the evidence. Let's pray. Let's pray. We're going to end um, our time today in our E90 prayer space. Um, E90 has been this thing we've been doing as a church now, coming up on 90 days, where we've committed 90 days to pray for nine people for um, 90 seconds a day. And we've even been taking time out of our Sundays to do that. And today is the last one where we're going to do that because in this, we've been anticipating you inviting people to come to church, inviting people to have conversations, softened hearts. But today, we're going to pray that the evidence would be compelling. The evidence of you showing up as a sacrificial truth teller. The evidence of going back to scripture. The evidence of the spirit at work in their heart. The supernatural work where the spirit says, I've come to convict people of truth, right? That's what I've come to do. Expecting that. And so we're going to take 90 seconds now, again, to pray for those nine people on your heart. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, take this time to surrender to him. It's the ABCs. Admit your guilt, believe he is who he says he is, and confess him as your Lord and he will forgive you. It's that simple. So let's take 90 seconds and let's pray that God might indeed work and we'd see more people come to a just verdict of who Jesus is. Let's do that.